From Teach for America's One Day Studio, you're listening to Changing Course. All season long, we examined the barriers Black, Indigenous, and people of color, or BIPOC teachers, face when they step into their classrooms. We discussed why representation matters, not only for students, but for teachers as well. We explored establishing new, non-traditional pathways into the classroom through coaching and mentorship. We even looked at combating burnout with community care. All these topics had one thing in common, creating a classroom culture that values community. Back in March, we traveled to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest EDU and brought together a panel of powerhouse speakers who discussed the importance of creating healthy school cultures reflective of the community in which one serves. In today's episode, you'll hear audio from that discussion featuring thoughts from Christopher Sandoval, Ebony Payne-Brown, and Tony De La Rosa, visionary BIPOC educators from the Teach for America network who are passionate about radically reimagining the role of schools within communities. We hope you enjoy this special live episode. In an educators' meeting in Memphis, Tennessee, Kiesia Norman, a BIPOC educator and aspiring school leader, said, If a school isn't actively engaged in the community, it's just another building. And that's true. Our kids, especially Black, Indigenous, and other students of color living in urban areas, have enough buildings. What they need, what we all need, is vital community and vital education. During the panel at South by Southwest, we unpacked what it actually takes to create community, an educational ecosystem that's built on collaboration and active engagement. Our panelists all agreed that a healthy school can't just be another building. My name is Jonathan Santos Silva, and I'm joined today by three powerhouse educators. And rather than me introduce them to you, I would rather have them introduce themselves. And so in the tradition of our show, I want to invite each of you to introduce yourself in the ways that feel most comfortable and complete. So if that includes multiple languages, the roles you play, not just at work, but at home and in community and with your families, please do so. Hello, everybody. Buenas tardes a todos. My name is Christopher Sandoval, and I'm a proud teacher at KIPP SoCal Schools in Los Angeles, California. KIPP Community Prep is a school that I wholeheartedly believe in, is a part of my identity now as a teacher. And I am the performing arts educator there for the fourth year. Aside from that, I am a son, a rivalrous twin brother, a very passionate dancer, and a spicy product of two Mexican parents. I'll also like to say, in a more professional sense, when it comes to our children, I'm a storyteller, a space creator, and a mentor. I feel like my teaching has really always had a theme of mentorship in it whenever we are talking to our children. And besides that, I feel as an educator, it's important for me to also share that I'm a program developer for a Latino youth male organization called Latino Youth Leadership, which works with underserving youth in Orange County, California. Hi, everybody. I'm Ebony Payne-Brown. I am the founder and executive director of Peace Academy Charter School, which is a tuition-free public charter school in Atlanta, Georgia. I am originally from Philadelphia, so I'm a native Philadelphian. I currently live in Atlanta. 
other characteristics. I'm a mother to a very brilliant and vibrant and opinionated seven-year-old. I am a partner, a sister, soon-to-be wife in in three weeks. Um, Thank you. I have been an educator for about 18 years, and I am currently a member of the community that I am founding the school in. Hey, y'all. I'm Tony De La Rosa. I go by he, they, and sha, pronouns in Tagalog. First, I'll start off with saying I'm a father, newly of a toddler right now, who is living in Madison, Wisconsin, who is currently sick, and I feel so bad being here. I'm also a husband, a son, and in terms of work, I am the author of a forthcoming book called Teaching the Invisible Race, Embodying a Pro-Asian American Lens in Schools with Josie Bass and Wiley Publishing, and a PhD student in the Ed Leadership and Policy Analysis Studies at UW-Madison, Wisconsin. Word. I'm just pleased to be up here with y'all. <laughs> <clears throat> so, as we were saying, a school that is disconnected is just an empty building or impassive building. And so what we're proposing today is that the opposite of that is something like community-centered education, one in which community is not an obstacle, but is truly a part, a foundation, a set of assets upon which we build education for our kids. And so to start the conversation, I want to invite you all to define for us what does community-centered education mean to you? If I may... I like to see it as service learning that allows students to connect to the community and vice versa. I really do believe that this is a bridge that needs to be in every school. And that bridge could be flawed. It could be could have holes in it. And I think the trick is knowing where the holes are and having critical conversations with the right stakeholders, not just one or two, to make sure that bridge is always intact, especially for students of color, students of refugee families, students with behavior issues. This bridge, I think, that every school should be having of connecting community to the classroom, which also bridges academics to civic learning and identity it needs to be intact. And I think it's always a healthy, conscious conversation to have any day of the week at a school. I would also build on that is it's a way to work with community members outside of the classroom, right? Like we talk about the school can just be a building, but community-centered education or engagement looks at how are we working with community members outside of the classroom, outside of the instruction, and when possible, in those community organizations, authentic environment, right? Like when we can, going to those organizations so children can have that external experience, not just in the classroom. I think it's also, it's a critical component of real-world education, right? We think about a lot of schools who are inquiry-based modeled now or have real-world educational experiences, and you can't do that without working with community-based organizations or you can but it just will be a little wonky Um, so it's like working with those organizations that are right there in that surrounding community you both summed it up pretty well i'll go a little more macro around the word community in and of itself which begs the question of defining community what is the purpose of community is how i think about this question right and then also in relation to school so and education because school and education as we know are different things. We know, uh, I see some nods in the head, yes. (laughs) Community, if the purpose of community is to help us thrive, well, survive and thrive, where are we on that continuum in education and in schools, right? Education helps us thrive, right? Especially, I'm thinking about like people of the global majority, students of the global majority, right? People of color, right? People of marginalized, historically systematized, historically marginalized communities, right? If we're not thinking about community in regards to 
having the function of people moving from survival to thriving, and what is the purpose right mm. now, right? It's continuing to do a purpose of labor, labor and producing structural functionalism to put people in the labor force, essentially. So we have some definitions rolling out, but I really want to bring it into real life. What does it look like? Thinking about your time running school buildings or at the front of classrooms or your work in organizations now, what does community-centered education look like to you? Give us like paint a vivid picture, not a ideal, but the real, the real thing that you see daily. I love the like not the ideal for me because I am my school is opening this fall, so I am in the founding stages. So um, part of this is I, a little bit of the ideal, but we're working with communities now as we even get this up and running. And so what this looks like when you think about bringing the community engagement into schools is who are the partners that you are intentionally working with as you are developing the school, right? Like there are many different organizations and many different companies that you can work with. But a part of that experience is choosing people intentionally, working with other people in your community. For example, I'm saying one of our partners in the audience right now, Restore More, we've intentionally worked with them to build our curriculum. There are many other organizations that could do the work, but to us it's does this organization represent our mission and vision? Do they work with, are they intentional about working with other schools like us? And are they from our community? And the answer to all of those questions was yes. <laughs> and so that's a big part of thinking about what community means to me. It's like working with people who I know are grounded in the same work that I'm doing. If I may add to that, being a teacher, I'm doing a lot more of the groundwork and I really feel that community also to me, at our school is out mobilizing our families to believe in something that could take our children to the next step. And that is through so many different things. I'm really lucky to be at my school because programming for us is a very big deal. If you can't be in person because of COVID restrictions, best believe we're going to do it on Zoom. And we're going to always find a way. But I'm very, just uh, very, very proud of how we do not limit our community learning to just the month of empowerment. We are always understanding that there's a connection between every community of color issue and everything is intersectional. So we always speak in a language of intersectionality when it comes to our community and our family leadership planning council. I would say it's the right arm of our school. It allows us to lift our students up and our teachers because we know that we're not alone. So without a platform where families and especially parents have a voice, that community will, I believe, not reach its full potential. So earlier, Tony, you mentioned, like, we can't have this conversation without defining what community is or even thinking about what the purpose of it is. And so before we go further, I would love for each of you to talk to us about your community. Help us understand your community. You come from three different cities, and who you're talking about when you talk about community may be slightly different. What are the assets we often have these conversations and we talk about community as an obstacle or set of barriers. So what are the assets, the strengths, what's the magic of the communities in which you're talking about educating kids? So uh, what characterized me is kind of nomadic in the fact that I lived in California, born and raised in San Diego, California, military from, military brat from Camp Pendleton, it's a Marine Corps base, right? Moved when I was 11 to Cincinnati, moved to Indianapolis, moved to Boston, moved to Miami, now I'm in Madison, right? So what does the community mean, right? I'm always redefining and defining that. I think like I go now from the inner to out about my identity. So I'm really trying to find in those spaces 
where are my Asian Americans at? Where are my Filipinx Americans at, right? And I think about the core value of isang bagsak, which means we fall and rise together, which comes from the Dana, actually comes from the anti-martial law movement in the Philippines brought to the U.S. and the Delano grape strike in the 1960s of labor organizing movements. So I try to find that everything and I'm finding that core value in Ubuntu. I'm finding that core value in so many different places, not for us, without us, right? This cross-racial, coalitional, community core value. And when I feel that inherently in systems and places where I'm at, I know the structure for community is ready to be built. Mm. Yeah. So I think many of us are in multiple different communities, right? In any given seven, we're in multiple different communities. The thing that stands out is when I really feel like I'm in community, I feel like I can be my complete self. Right. Like I can kick my shoes off. I'm just going to talk how I'm going to talk. You know, it's like it's you show up authentically. You you don't worry about the judgment. And even if there are some people judging you, you know that you have other folks who are going to stand up for you. Right. Like you just feel that sense of like, OK, this is my place. And so I can think of so many different places that embody that when I think about the physical place. My school is in Decatur. Folks from Decatur say Decatur, where it's greater. <laughs> but it's just that place, it represents so, so much. But to the students and to the families there, you go next door and you see auntie, you see grandma, you see like the elders in, in the same houses that they raise their children in. Or you go, so we're actually in a strip mall. I go to the store next to me and they're like, okay, you, you coming here? Cool. Like, we got your back. Like, it's just that sense of like, we want this community to still be thriving, we want it to be a place where our children are safe, and we still want it to be ours. And then, so if there are people who are coming to really do that, we're going to protect it. And so I think those are the things that kind of stand out to me about, about community and specifically the, the peace community. Those are great points. And to add to those points, I truly believe that our school should be a reflection, not a spinning image, but a reflection of our community. I really do feel that our students should have a voice in making sure that that their school looks like the community they live in. And if, if they need help with that, that's where we really need to dig deep and access people from the community, their parents, anyone, not just ourselves, not just through a book and not just through a YouTube video, really making sure students understand, not just us, what community means to them. So conversations about community should always be happening because communities are also changing and being challenged or silenced or marginalized, what have you. So for me, I think community is also about what kids feel their community feels to them and what it should look like to them and how they want to better it. <clears throat> I, I wonder if y'all noticed it when they start talking about their communities, how their energy raises and the speed at which you're talking. You know what I mean? It picks up. It's like the snowball. And unfortunately, for too, too many of our kids, it's almost like as they're crossing the threshold, they have to leave that. Mm -hmm. You got to put on the mm -hmm. invisible coat rack. So the follow-up question to that is, in your experience, what needs to be changed or rethought with regard to the relationship between schools and our kids' communities? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can start. So Peace Academy is the, the first charter school in Georgia that has an Afrocentric curriculum. And that was intentional for many reasons. But one, so many black and brown students are in this cultural bubble when they go to school, right? They have to leave who they are at home. For many families, they choose to do that and send their child to a school to get a, a better education, right? Better, in quotes, because they're 
there's trade-offs to what better is. But at peace, we are intentionally creating an environment where children don't have to step outside of their culture. We actually have a cultural studies course every day where students get to learn about their culture and other people's culture because we there's beauty in all of our cultures. And so having that opportunity for students to engage in that way, I think is significant. Hmm. Yeah. No, just before we even go yeah. further, you're talking about, you know, an Afrocentric school experience, right? And yeah. I, so for, for y'all that don't know me, Outside of this podcast, I run an organization called the Liber Institute, L-I-B-E-R, like liberation, freedom. And we work to embolden and equip indigenous young people, families, and educators to transform their schools. So we talk a lot with folks who are starting immersion schools, Lakota language or, you know, whatever their, their tribal languages are. And we were having a meeting today. And one of my team members said, you know, all schools are immersion schools. It's just what are they immersing yeah. our kids in? And so when you're talking about building an Afrocentric school, right, folks looking, oh, wow, that's special. That's different. If they're not going to your school, then they're going to a what? A Euro-centric mm-hmm. approach. And so that's the decision we have to make about our schools. What are we immersing our kids in? What are we exposing them to? What are we rooting them in? What are the funds of knowledge, the funds of the resources, the values, the assets that we're rooting them in? Right. So, yeah, what, is, what needs to change about the way schools and communities engage and, and relate? I love how Ebony was bringing up like the focus of Afrocentric, like going deeply into the culture, defining what the culture is from the ground up and starting anew from there. That's reimagination. That's stretching the imagination. We're battling an imagination gap right now, Mm. right? In education. That's a crisis, right? So I was just talking to Ebony saying that like, oh, this is dope for black students. Like, you know, no, no, this is for white students too. This is for Asian students. This everyone is sent. If we center and start off from the black centered curriculum, that's where we can start seeing change and outcomes across, right? Where do we have spaces to be able to talk about our intersections of identity? That is realistic. Schools right now are not realistic because we bring in multiple identities in every space we go into and they're activated by the outside realm everywhere. And then seeing students as intellectuals, right? Right now we don't have students on this panel and I feel like we should. We don't have students at this conference, enough of them. Maybe they are here, but They should be here, right? So that's another aspect of ethnic studies as a structure, as a framework to have us change and shift, right? The ecosystem, the ecology of school. And just a little bit to add on, and I know we talked earlier, Ebony, about how it could be seen, unfortunately, as divisive having an Afrocentric curriculum. But I can't wait for students that don't identify as African-American and they're from another community and how they're building cultural competency. So when they go out to the world, they could defend that situation of that person in need who's being marginalized, even if they're not from that community. Having a centered curriculum or at least having conversations about community and of color with our children daily, it builds competency and in turn builds global citizens. We don't want to come up too nationalistic and seeing that we're here as an island. No, we are a part of the world and how are we continuing to challenge our students because let's face it we are always here to be invested in the work of our students and their learning but as teachers as practitioners I need to check myself and find out what was 
a white paradigm complex that I was taught how to teach or from my schooling? How is that informing my teaching without me realizing? So as also practitioners of this, of this field, we need to also make sure that we are not perpetuating. And I love the word that we use at our, at our school. We see ourselves as, as abolitionist teachers. We have to make sure that it's not okay to tweak anymore. Reforms are great, but we have to understand that we need to clear things off the board and start fresh and then pull. That's what's been working a lot for our school and in my practice. Mm. Can I just add on? When you, you ask the question, what needs to change? And I think it's our connection to power and how we're intentionally sharing power with our communities or not. And so what that looks like is how are we bringing not only students, but like how are we bringing community members into the decisions that our schools are making at the policy level, at the procedure level, at the instructional and curriculum level? Are we as schools being intentional about saying, actually, here's this curriculum we want to use. Come share your thoughts. What do you want your, your child to get from this experience? Or what are you hoping, even before we buy the curriculum or build the curriculum, what are you hoping that your child gets first? And then we can go and find resources that match. Like having families and community members at the table with us is important. And it's important for us to intentionally set that time. Every month we have a parent engagement call where we say, here's a topic. Families come, tell us what you want. Communities come and tell us what you want so that we don't forget and get too busy. And that's something that we just forget to include. It's crucial to engage the communities we're looking to impact. We cannot create change without activating the voices of those most affected by those changes. When it comes to community engagement, every voice matters. We'll continue our conversation from South by Southwest EDU after a quick break. But first, we wanted to ensure you hear from students across the country who are being impacted by teachers who share aspects of their identities. Throughout the season, we've been lifting up the voices of students of color as they reflect on their experiences. Here are some words from Colin Poon, a high school student from Orlando, Florida. Hi, my name is Colin Poon, and I'm a public high school student from the Orlando area in Central Florida. I identify as Asian American under the broad banner of the AAPI community, with my dad being Chinese American while my mother is European American. As a student in a state and community with a very small Asian population, I've only ever had one API teacher in the classroom, who is my freshman bio teacher last school year. Having that one teacher, despite that short period of time that I had her, it was extremely important as it was the first time that I ever remotely saw myself culturally similar to one of my teachers, considering my school's only 2% Asian and being able to talk about many of those API events that we often went to in Central Florida, it was very important to just be able to talk about and culturally relate to each other on a personal level and to be able to have that bond between each other. And having her as a teacher forever changed me as it opened my eyes to the possibilities of a career in education, as never before had I thought of the possibility of being a teacher, since I had never seen anybody like me being a teacher in my local community. Having that API bio teacher and this experience helped me open my eyes to the things that I could be and achieve, and helped inspire me to start an Asian Students Association at my school, the first of its kind in my city, and has allowed me to create a safe space for other Asian American students at my school, just like the one that I, we created between me and my bio teacher on a daily basis, just talking to each other 
and just allowing ourselves to be able to be open about our identities and our culture. Before the break, we spoke about activating the voices of the people. One of the ways we can do that for our students is through activating community engagement in the classroom. Here's Christopher Sandoval explaining how culturally responsive education can support students' success through community engagement. I feel at the end of the day, when I'm looking at my lesson plan or my curriculum or my goals, my scope and sequence, I need to ask the question, how is this transforming the cultural space of my students in my school? And how is that connecting with the outside? So for me, there's very small things I can do as a teacher on the ground level. When I think about a cultural space or my, my school being a cultural space, something small I started doing last year is I started taking my speaker out from my dance studio and I played it during arrival and dismissal and recess. And I started asking parents in the cars, hey, what request do you want? Students, what kind of music do you want? And then I find the kids' bop version and then I play it the next day. <laughs> you know, things are, some things are questionable, but it's about just students feeling... So just feeling like they're at home, there's a sense of belonging. Yes, there's a difference, but that sense of belonging could start as small as just asking them, what kind of music do you listen to? And we're at the point now where students stop me in the hallway and they're like, Mr. Sandoval, five, six, seven, eight, and I have to model their dance move or something we did in the classroom. And if I lose, I owe them kickboard points or class dojo points. It's about just having them be in charge and in control of what their space feels like. And when those moments happen, I know that they are advocating and feeling that they're ambassadors for their school culture. Besides my program at school, which I teach K through fourth dance, every student receives a dance education. I run an after school program for Mexican folk dance primarily. And my students, about 50 of them this year, they all come from the campus. So we don't say that we are a different group or outside. We are an extension of the school. I think it's important for students to understand that when they are learning about their culture or engaging in something in the community, they can always take it back. So they need to see themselves as ambassadors of what they're doing. And when you are bridging, like I said earlier, school to community and community to school, students will want to seek leadership. It's all about seeking leadership for them and having that one job where they could spawn off into another one and then to a passion and then to a goal or what have you. But I really feel that um, for me, student success is based off of, in my dance programs, building self-confidence, which translates to presentation skills, building uh, self-discipline, which translates to body positivity and healthy living skills. There's always a way to continue building our students' skills from the classroom to the outside and personal lives, but I'm going to pause there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a lot of the same responses, but I think the thing that stands out to me when you think about student success is students need to feel confident in whatever they're doing. And when they have that confidence, they then are able to be more successful, right? A lot of our programs, we have inquiry-based models. At Peace, we have field experiences. And so every month we give students a question. We give them some resources to help them develop their own opinions about these questions. And then we give them an opportunity in a community-based organization to explore that question a little bit more. When students are actually developing their own answers, when they're getting to work with community organizations, they get to see themselves 
in that field. They get to see themselves in that work. The end result is not a prescribed answer. It's here is the question. You develop the answer. So they're seeing themselves in the final product. And all of that is giving them the, okay, I'm the creator of this. My answers are right. I know a little bit about this concept and I learned it on my own in many ways. And Mm -hmm. that's the journey that students get to ride when they're exposed to culturally responsive education and to community organizations that look like them and where they can see, I can actually do this too. Mm. I want to get Tony back in here in a second. You said something earlier about school and school not necessarily being the same thing as education. And it reminded me, I was on a plane about eight years ago. I was serving as a principal. And I sat next to this older woman and she asked, you know, what do you do? And I said, I'm a principal. And she's like, wow, you're a principal? That must be hard these days. Kids don't Kids don't really like learning anymore. And my son, who is now nine, he's going to be 10. He's like one at this point. And I'm like, well, I don't know about that. I said, I have a one-year-old at home. And he will put anything in his mouth if, if we weren't watching. He's trying to make sense of the world in the way he knows how. Kids love learning. Mm-hmm. They hate school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I want to ask you, Tony, about that. What or where did your journey to reimagine schooling begin Was there a defining moment or was this an evolutionary process? Yeah. I learned a lot about education and the separation between school and education in spoken word cafes. So there's this joint called Baba Boo Dance. It's a spoken word hip hop, like cafe venue. And my homie, Rome, I forget his last name, but Rome put me on the mic. It was the first time getting exposure to that scene, right? And I was learning so much about what I wasn't learning in in school and in class, right? I was an Asian studies major, not knowing what I was going to do. Not Asian American studies, Asian studies. So I knew everything about international Asia, but not my home place and how Asian Americans were being impacted. But I learned a lot about Asian America within the spoken word cafes and about myself reflected into that. So that tells you a lot about what education was happening. I know my sense of engagement, you see the body, it's very somatic, right? So you start to see your body keep that memory of that education, the cadence of spoken word, the the criticality around the words itself, the people engaging with you after the mic, during the mic, the uh uh-huh, the mm mm-hmm's, every that, everything about that is education. And people undermine that. Dr. Christopher Emden always talks about, don't underestimate the mm mm-hmm inside a spoken word venue because that's that connection piece. They're making a critical, psychedelic, emotional connection with you. And that's what's missing, the emotional intelligence in the school. Mm -hmm. And that's where I see students that I've taught, teachers that I've coached, principals that I've coached thrive, where they're like, yo, I can feel myself in this. You back the authenticity, right? I can see my authenticity reflected in this somehow. I feel it first, and then I can identify it because you got to go back to the ancestral wisdom, y'all. Like, it lives in the body. Mm. Christopher, I'm going to ask that same question. Where did your journey to reimagine schooling begin? Was there a, an inflection point or was it more of a gradual? Very gradual. I had the opportunity to teach uh, Teacher America in, in South Texas. Then went to the Bay with Kip Area Schools and then now Kip Sokal Schools in LA. But I was able to find patterns of how schools, who all my schools I have served in, on paper you could say a school serves 99.9 Latino students. But are they really serving the students? What, I mean, I'm not talking about cafeteria food and the, uh, maybe a, a concha and a tamal on Fridays. I'm talking about 
how are kids serving each other, their own stories? How are their stories being reflected in what their learning is? And we could just leave it to project-based learning on Friday, but I feel like when you, when you talk about that, Tony, about spoken word and all the amazing intricacies and nuances, a quiet classroom is a sick classroom. All our students need to be talking, actively, actively processing, because as they're processing, they are becoming who they are. And so this pattern I've seen in some schools or perhaps in some teachers or departments have been, unfortunately, a colonial way of making sure students are listening and following a model. And now the students I've noticed who have not been as successful have been my boys. My boys have had it the worst in terms of following that model of quiet, mm -hmm. sit up straight and don't talk. Mm -hmm. Put your hands in your lap. I, it, that starts there, man. And we learned that in yes, kindergarten. Sir. I see a pattern of apathy in our children and disconnect from what's in the classroom, what's happening outside. And so when I think about how I am doing my best to find these patterns, I really do my best to always constantly ask myself the question, mm. what am I doing today that builds off of yesterday and empowers a kid today? I really do my best to understand that there's no perfect school. There's no perfect charter, no perfect public school, no perfect private school. Mm -hmm. But there is what you do today. And so for me, bridging that gap is a daily, daily struggle and also a daily opportunity. Ebony, I want to bring you back in. You have a really, really cool job before you. One that I'm somewhat familiar with as a former high school founder and designer. Um, when we think about shifting culture, oftentimes we're thinking about something that's already there, like mm -hmm. the incoming new leader trying to rehabilitate something. But there's something special about when you're building a new school because there, there is a culture of learning and education and relationships with schooling that already pre-exists your school. Mm -hmm. And what's challenging or maybe a little different is it's not a unified experience because they're coming in from all their different places. And I wonder, how are you thinking about shifting culture, right? To ensure that the school you build, as opposed to maybe places that families have experienced from before, ensuring that your school is reflective of and inviting to an engaged community. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I think as a school founder, I've, I had the privilege of like going blue sky, right? Like what I can have anything in the world. What do I want to, to be true? And I think that's been, that's definitely been a gift, but then also there's a part of me that's like, but I don't know this or I don't know that, or I, I don't, I don't really have the money over here. So I think a part of, before I even get to, to, to the students part, but even the design part of part of shifting the culture and the mindset is thinking about one, what's the, the biggest problem that you think you're trying to solve? Especially the part that what do you have the, the passion to solve within that problem? And then finding resources and partners, particularly those within the community to help you solve that. Not trying to do it alone, but finding other people who are aligned who can help you solve that problem. And it alleviates the like, I don't have the resources yet, right? The resources are going to come when you're doing the work mm -hmm. you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And then when you connect yourself to other people who are also helping you do the work, the resources are going to come. But finding that, that, that village, that community to help you do the work is one. The other thing that I would say is being extremely intentional about 
everything and the alignment and the connection to each other. When I think about when I have a great idea, yes, I have that great idea. And then I actually have to break down the steps. So how is this going to get from my head to the classroom and not skipping a step like from my head to the board, to the staff members, to the parents, to the to the families, to the students. I think shifting culture so often we're like, oh, we know this is the problem. Here's a solution. Go. Everybody do it. It's going to be great. And then you're like, yeah, but you're actually you're actually leaving out a whole group of people. And so making sure you have those steps. And then I'll th- I think that the third thing that for me has been important along this journey is how am I including the families along with us? So I mentioned that we have an Afrocentric curriculum. Many of our families hear that and they're like, what does that mean? I don't know. What, what are you going to be doing? And so a big part of that is how are we working with families to help them understand what are we doing in class? Everybody who has a child has heard the, the jokes of like, common core math, I can't help my child with that. I'm one of those people. I'm like, this is going to be a little rocky. But it's like, how are we providing the opportunities for families to really understand what's happening in your environment so that it's, it's a complete experience for students? They're not coming to school and getting something totally different, or they're not coming into our educational environment and getting something that their parents can't help us with, or... Our parents are not at the table helping us learn how are they coming to school and children are not getting experience that we need help with. So I think those three things, one, thinking about what is your passion and your purpose, two, finding resources that align to those that can help you do the work so you don't have to be the end all be all. Three, making sure you're identifying how is this getting through the entire pipeline to make that change. And four, how are you making sure that everybody who interacts with that child has the same ideas and the same abilities to work this magic? So, Tony, how do we shift culture in a curriculum or how do we shift culture in a school, right, to be reflective of inviting in an engaged community? I mean... First shout out to Ebony. You just operationalized culture in like three, four steps and like literally two minutes, three minutes. So that was huge. I was just like in awe the entire time. Right now, my lived truth, my like my magic right now is mostly around ethnic studies. You hear if you if anything you, you learn from me today is about ethnic studies, policy, structure, and practice. So I will always reiterate the fact that people are not centering around that. Ethnic studies, we need to start off from the ground up, from the curriculum. So I would argue that shifting it is like taking ethnic studies and not just seeing it as curriculum, but seeing it where you can actually embed it in your structures, your systems and policies. So I would take one example. Isang Baksak, I talked about that earlier, right? You want to operationalize it? Let's do it. Isang Baksak can break down, I think about it, into multi-partiality. Multi-partiality, what does that mean? Multi-partiality means having multiple perspectives. So you think about Isang Baksak as a culture, right? Underneath that, Isang Baksak is multi-partiality, holding multiple truths at the same time, but also privileging and focusing on the most marginalized groups in your building, right? Operationalized right there. That's a core value in every meeting you have, right? including families, including students in decision-making, multi-partiality, right? Thinking about cross-racial coalition building, cross-racial coalition building in your curriculum, in your meetings. Think about all these months, right? We just got out of Black History Month, right? Wrong, right? It's Black History Month every day, right? Disrupt that, celebrate Black identity every year, all, uh, every day, right? Asian Americans, Asian American history is happening every month. I hope you know 
It's happening and it hasn't ended, right? Multipartiality, cross-racial solidarity. Those are two operational things that you can bring into your building. Hmm. All right, y'all. I want to invite y'all. We're talking about community, community, community. We got all this community here. And I want to get y'all involved. Come on up. Come on up. Let's get a few questions out. We'll get them out and then y'all can choose which ones you want to answer. But no soliloquies, even though we got a mic now. Same rules apply. Same rules apply. <laughs> hey, y'all. I'm Kiana. I'm director of social at Teach for America. So I've briefly worked with you all or amplified your work in some way. Y'all are brilliant. I'm so happy to be here. What would you say is one of the most pressing issues in education that people aren't talking about enough? That's a good question. Black girls. Mm. I, for every reason you said already, it's important to think about our black and brown boys, mm-hmm. you know, and the ways that we criminalize them and we adultify them and they're so threatening and, you know, we punitively discipline them. But low-key, a lot of that same stuff has happened to our black girls. Mm. We don't have to pick winners and losers and partition our energy. We only have enough energy for black boys. We need to think about our black girls as well. And I think the reason that's so important is because for so many of us culturally, women hold such an important role in our communities and our families as well. And we know that all the way you know, to whether we're talking about education or we're going into economics. You know, Grameen Bank, when they're investing in communities with microloans, they realize if we invest in women, we're investing in families, mm. right? So if we invest in our girls, we're investing in families, we're investing in communities. So I think low key, that's the thing we're not, one of the many things that we're not talking about enough. Thank you. I'll keep it short. From the work I've been doing, I could stand behind the statement, male mental health in our schools. Boys, we need to be honest, we have to look at how shootings and gender are connected. And we have to look at everything around that. And we all know on the news, it's all one thing or another, it's always agenda narrative based, but they're the ones talking about on the news and communities are getting scared or what have you. But in the classroom, that's, that's where magic is happening or not happening. What are we perpetuating? And I think we're perpetuating the lack of conversation about vulnerability and not just saying I could talk about my feelings, but emotional intelligence. We need to be encouraging our boys to be emotionally intelligent as much as athletically intelligent. Mm-hmm. I would say how the lack of instructional engagement and the lack of dynamic just instruction period is leading to the increase in special education diagnosis for our children. Yeah, I think so oftentimes students are diagnosed with different labels, not because they have those labels, but because the the classroom is boring or the teacher doesn't understand how to culturally engage with their students. And so then the child does what children do. And then it results in now we have a whole case of a lot of things that are untrue and unnecessary. Y'all know what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> ethnic studies, you know, ethnic studies. But I want to share like a, something that I'm kind of geeking out about right now in research. And like right now, if you're anyone following the Asian American coalitions fighting for ethnic studies policy, it is happening. It's a tidal wave right now happening all across, starting with the Cheech Act in Illinois, moving all the way to Connecticut, New Jersey. People are adopting Asian American ethnic studies policy, which is mandating it in districts and states to teach it, which is dope. I love it. I'm about it. But then if we as an Asian American coalition or whoever that coalition is, is not 
being loud about African American history, then something's wrong there. <laughs> that is not, yup, that's not doing us justice. That is not collective liberation. And to me, that is a travesty because I've been told by the, these coalitions not to talk about that. We only talk about Asian American issues. No, we were born out of the Black Power Movement. We were born out of Black civil rights movement. So we have to give our due diligence and our duty for collective liberation and honor our ancestors. Mm. Maybe one more question? We got five minutes, so I, got, I can take one more question and then we got the lightning round. Mm. I got the magic wand question, so don't, don't <laughs> do it. Hi, y'all. My name is Joan. I currently live in New Orleans. There's a lot of teacher turnover and a lot of transplants in New Orleans. And what does community engagement look like when you are a gentrifier in the area that you're teaching in? So, as a non-native person educating kids mm -hmm. in native schools, okay. it's something, but as a black person, yeah. this is something that I've had conversations about a lot because I know what it's like to have someone come into my community and tell us things like, well, I'm only here because nobody in the community is prepared to do this and be like, <laughs> and so very thoughtful about, so how do I get to be, how do I become a co-conspirator and not a, uh, a quote-unquote ally? In Lakota culture, in Lakota language, there's a term, it relates to the term you're using. It's called mitakuye owasi. We're all related. And I think that if you are finding yourself in the position of being a gentrifier or the non-whatever, the question you have to ask yourself is, how do I show up like a relative? If these really were my kids, right? Because we do that. Mm. Oh, my kids, my kids. I'm taking my kids, my kids. <laughs> right? But like, then you go and you take a left out of the school and everybody else goes right. Right? So what if they really were your kids? If they really were your relatives? What if you're, the parents of your kids were your cousins, your brothers and sisters? What do you want for those kids? What do you want for your kids? And not so much that you get to dictate or tell families, well, I want my kids to go to college, so all these kids have to go, but the same level of autonomy and sovereignty, right, and freedom to make decisions for their kids, I want that for all children, and so what does that look like? It's a lot of getting out of the school building and into community, meeting people at libraries, meeting people at cafes, meeting people at places of work, coming with a translator if you need to so that people can speak in the language that they're comfortable and not the mm. one that you are, and, and committing to this as a journey, a lifelong journey and not a, it's end of August, school's about to start, so let's talk to families and not talk to them again until conferences. I think it's that, all that and then some and so much more and constantly being willing to have people in your corner in your like kitchen cabinet who can check you, right, if you're not doing that. Mm -hmm. I would also add just one other thing is, how are you speaking to the children in that community? Are you encouraging them to um, go to school, leave the community to be great? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that is going to perpetuate your cycle. Um, and so as yes, do all the things you want to do, but you don't have to leave to be great. You can be great here and you can explore the world if you want. But mm -hmm. there are multiple mm -hmm. options, not the one narrative that you have to leave this environment to, to be who you are going to be. Mm. If I may, just quickly, going to Texas, going to the Bay, just because they're predominantly Latino schools doesn't mean I was accepted right away. I was a kid from LA in Texas. I wore Toms, they wore boots. And <laughs> mm. dead serious. And that, that right there was a conversation. So I was a listener before I was a talker. 
and my theme every day was about cultural exchanges. And we learned that there's pluralism in our community as relatives and also in the community of color. There's not just one experience. So all season we've been asking everybody the magic wand question, right? And to order to go from the school systems that we have to one that is community centric, we know that it's not one thing. But I'm gonna ask you to pretend anyway. You have a magic wand, you can wave, and you can do one thing to make our schools more community centric. And you can't, the Aladdin rule applies, no wishing for more wishes. What's that one thing <laughs> really quick? We'll start at the end and come back over here. Funding for ethnic studies in every school, independent, public, private, everywhere. Mandated meditation morning program in every school, as well as a multidisciplinary arts program in every school. Put your children in that school. Mm. Yeah. And then you'll do whatever needs to, to be done to get it to where you need to have it. It goes without saying that we cannot talk about shifting culture without talking about power. Who holds the power to create change? Power can be defined in many ways, and it's normal to think of it from a positional perspective. For example, we often think of someone in power as someone with a lot of money or political influence. But from an organizing perspective, people are a form of power. Power comes from the same root as the Spanish word poder, meaning the ability to act. All of our parents, our families, and our students have the ability to act. So our role as educators is to figure out how to activate that power. We do that by rallying our communities around the issues that matter most to them. And there's no issue that matters more to families than their kids. We all have the power to create the change we want to see in our classrooms. It all starts right here in our communities. We hope you enjoyed this special roundtable discussion from South by Southwest EDU. It's been our pleasure to profile the incredible work of educators, blazing new trails and creating the change we all want to see in education. Thank you so much for listening and learning alongside us. And by now, you know the deal. If you love the podcast, be sure to rate, review, and follow Changing Course on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Changing Course is produced by Teach for America's One Day Studio in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to the man, the myth, and the legend, Michael Kress, Georgia Davis, Stephanie Garcia, and Akande Simons from Teach for America, and the production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, the best producer on earth, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, the tag team champions of the world, Chris Jacobs and Shanice Tyndall, and Carter Wogan. This special episode of Changing Course is produced by The Collective, Teach for America's Association for BIPOC Alumni, Priya Patel, Aggie Ibrahimi Bazaz, and the One Day Studio video team. Shout out to the South by Southwest EDU team who helped produce this live episode. Kayla Myers, Deontay McClendon, and Megan Stark. Extra special thanks to Kiasia Norman, 
whose original insight about school buildings and communities inspired us to ask these questions. Thanks also to the homie, Norlydia Moody, for support on the panel discussion. Last but certainly not least, thank you to Colin Poon and the educators who shared their time and experience to help us make this episode. Christopher Sandoval, Tony De La Rosa, and Ebony Payne-Brown. I'm Jonathan Santos Silva. Peace.